Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hi, everyone. People often ask how they can support more great stories from The Wild, and we really appreciate your asking. Thank you. Uh, the Wild is a joint production of myself and KUOW Public Radio, and you can support this vital work and become part of The Wild community by checking out our show notes. There you'll find information about supporting my wildlife organization, Chris Morgan Wildlife, through Patreon. Help fuel the next adventure. Okay, enjoy the episode, guys. All right, that's a good milestone. The first thousand feet gained puts us up at about 2,700 feet. I'm huffing my way up the side of a mountain, climbing about 5,000 feet in five miles. And this first mile, ah, it's steep, it's like a staircase. I'm in the wilderness of Washington State's North Cascades. I took a 16 mile long boat ride to get to this trail I'm hiking. It's warm and the sweat's dripping in my eyes. 3,000. That puts us close to 5,000 feet. I'm going to a famous fire lookout tower known as Desolation Peak. Feeling every step in the 45 pound pack. I'm carrying my tent. All the food and water I need, and lots of layers. The lookout's at the top of the ridge, and it's a notoriously tough place to get to. My thighs are already burning. Huge Douglas fir and ponderosa pine conifer trees open up into lush green meadows, and icy cold rain is now pouring down. One step in front of the other. It's strange to think about fire in a place this wet. But the American West is a fire landscape. Since 1983, there's been an average of 70,000 wildfires every year in the United States. And the wildfire season is getting longer. Warmer springs and long, dry summers are the cause. Things are changing fast in this ancient landscape. So how have wildfires and our philosophy of fighting them changed over the decades? Getting closer. I think about half a mile away now. To answer that, I've climbed to the top of this mountain, to the famed fire lookout at Desolation Peak, to speak to Jim Hentley. He's the fire watchman who's stationed at the lookout. Desolation Peak has long been a place to look for answers. I'm hoping to find a new perspective through him. After almost four hours of hiking in the rain, I see a surreal outline of the old square wooden building. Oh, I see it. There it is. Hallowed ground, desolation lookout. Oh, I got goosebumps. Well, maybe I'm just cold. <laughs> I'm completely drenched, but Jim, the friendly fire lookout, is there to welcome me inside. Jim? You're taking Conrad's advice a little <laughs> too seriously in the destructive <laughs> element of Earth. <laughs> Oh, we have the right place then, huh? I guess you're okay. <laughs> you are a sight for sore eyes, Jim. Ah, oh, nice to meet you, my friend. The job of a fire lookout is to be a step ahead, ever watchful, observe all around you, and warn of danger. 
but maybe also to remind us of our role in the ever-evolving ecology of fire. From KUOW in Seattle, I'm Chris Morgan. Welcome to the wild. Finally, inside and out of the rain, Jim Hentley makes me a warm drink. He has an old hand-cranked coffee grinder clamped to his desk to make a fresh brew. Jim's in his late 60s, tall with high cheekbones and a complexion that's seen a lot of time outdoors. He's a quiet man, but I sense he's ready to talk. His home for several months each year is a 12 by 12 box that was packed up here by mules and horses in 1932. There are big, single-pane windows on all sides with 360-degree views of all the peaks around us. But there's no view today. The storm means we're up in thick clouds. The lookout is 15 miles from the nearest road and 6 miles from Canada. I heard it described as a crow's nest for smoke spotters, literally perched at 6,100 feet. Desolation rises up among other peaks with equally ominous names, Mount Despair, Damnation Peak, and Mount Terror. Artwork, photographs, and sun-faded handwritten quotes decorate the space. Jim points proudly to the small library he has on his desk. I've added quite a few books to the library, and there were quite a few up here when I came, but I, I like that. Fire on the Mountain, mixed in with The Essential Lewis and Clark, and a book simply titled Alone. Jim's job is to look for fires. Here in the giant forests of the North Cascades, like all over the West, fires are getting bigger and more common, which means jobs like Jim's are more important than ever. At the centre of the lookout is Jim's main tool, the Osborne Firefinder. It's like a, a giant compass about the size of a large pizza, and it sits on top of a tall table, pride of place, in the middle of the tiny room. And the compass part spins around like a lazy Susan over a detailed map. There's a crosshair gauge to look through. It turns, uh, there's a bearing ring that turns on 360 degrees, and on one end it has the, the brass affair you look through with a slot hmm. for your eye. When Jim sees smoke, he turns the Osborne and lines up the sights so it points to the location of the fire. He can then get a direction, a bearing, with the compass to give fire crews on the ground or in the air a precise location. You have to really pay attention to details in this job. As we used to say, you've got to be on a lookout about four seasons before you've made enough mistakes to actually <laughs> be able to read the land properly. So I, it's, I, it's, it's not exactly high technology, is it? It's technological and very, very clever, yeah, it's, but it's, it's not high tech. No, it's based on what early surveyors used. It's a surveyor's transit is what, it, what Osborne was basing it on and, um, you know, before there were laser, laser surveying and satellites and all that. It was, yeah, just uh, well, eyeball. This is an analog system in a digital world. For more than 100 years, the Forest Service has been using Osborns and fire lookouts like this one, placing men and women atop peaks and ridgelines to wait and watch for fire. One of Jim's most recent big fires was in 2018. He was hiking back up to the Desolation Lookout mid-fire season. 
so I was hiking in for my days off. I was on a couple of days off and um, hiking in there. I, there, I knew there'd been lightning, so I, I am looking around. Um, and I was actually down fairly low on the trail and through a gap in the trees, I, I had just happened to see these smokes. Jim saw two plumes of smoke high on a ridge on the other side of the lake below desolation. He describes these smokes as acting very differently than a cloud. Smokes have a, a bluish white color and they're not moved by the wind like clouds. They're pushed around by heat created by the fire below. They're just more of an active animal um, unto itself mm. and um, hard thing to describe. Jim radioed into the park dispatch from the trail to tell them where he thought the fire was on top of a ridge above Arctic Creek. Once he made the final push up to the lookout, he confirmed the location with the Osborne Firefinder. And they flew it some hours later, and it was starting to get bigger. Um, and they, they gave it a name, and unfortunately they didn't call it Arctic Creek Fire, which I thought they would. Um, from the aircraft, they said, yep, it's right where you put it, and... Um, so this will be the Arctic Gym fire. And I'm just oh. like, ah, oh, no, no, you cannot do that. And so first... Did the name stick, Arctic Gym? Of course, yeah, it's on the map. The Arctic Gym fire, really? Jim has pinned a picture of the fire on the wall of the lookout. Oh, there's the Arctic Gym of August, of August 2018. 2018. Uh, got, got pretty big. Jim is a humble guy. He seems a bit embarrassed to have had a fire named after him. Doing it this way, using the Osborne to locate fires, hasn't really changed since the 30s. But more and more, lookouts like Jim are being replaced with new technology. Although Jim's not afraid he'll lose his job anytime soon. He's been hearing these threats since he first started doing this work in the 70s. You know, you guys are going to be replaced. You're not going to be doing this for very much longer. We're going to have things on the top of the roof that just go beep, 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 beep. <laughs> We're not going to need people on the lookouts. But technology is changing how fires are being monitored. Weather satellites are now used to monitor potential or ongoing wildfires. Even solar-powered drones are used to relay crucial information to firefighting crews on the ground. At one point, the Forest Service operated 5,000 permanent fire lookouts like this. Now there are only a few hundred left. But Jim provides something that GPS can't. A huge one is that I can talk to people. <laughs> you know, this is um, very much... Even though Desolation Peak is so remote, Jim still gets frequent visitors to the lookout. People are drawn to the place. You can give the historical perspective on this. You can, you know, tell about its history. You can share the technology, such as it was in the 1930s and still, still active. Um, it's, you can give uh, a lot more information about the land, about the wildlife, about um, the vegetation. It just, it's a person. It's a person to tell stories. Like a mountaintop ambassador, giving people a better understanding of and respect for the land. And Jim isn't the first person to tell stories from this hilltop. I came to a point where I needed solitude and just stop the machine of thinking and enjoying what they call living. I just wanted to lie in the grass and look at the clouds. In 1956, writer Jack Kerouac spent a summer up here on Desolation Peak, working as a fire lookout just like Jim. 
Kerouac was in his mid-30s and hoped the experience would give him inspiration and clarity at a time when he needed it. Lo, in the morning I woke up, and it was a beautiful blue sunshine sky, and I went out in my alpine yard and hundreds of miles of pure snow-covered rocks and virgin lakes and high timber. My clock ticks the slow day. While I slept and traveled in dreams all night, the mountains didn't move at all, and I doubt they dreamed. Kerouac was a pioneer of the beat generation. He's seen as an early influence on the hippie movement, kind of an underground celebrity. He reported fires from this lookout. Fires start popping up all over the wilderness. During the lightning storm, I'd seen a red glow behind Skagit Peak on my east. Then no more. Four days later, the airplane spots a burned-out acre, but it is mostly dead, making a haze in Three Fools Creek. Kerouac was a practicing Buddhist and hoped his time at desolation would provide meditation and insight. He was here for 63 days. But Jim Hentley didn't come up here to get spiritual like Kerouac. Jim has a job that he takes very seriously. So far this year, he spent 70 days up here all alone. But undoubtedly, desolation still leaves room for a kind of spirituality. I think this place just does that to you. Even when this place is socked in and freezing cold and you're still, you're in the midst of, you, you step outside and you walk around in that fog and, and even then things get magical because the, the colors become so much more intense on the ground and the, the values are increased on the ground because of the wet dampness of the soil and um, the plants become so dramatic and little, little tiny studies of lichen become almost like forests, you know, to explore and takes me back to my childhood of exploring every little thing and finding puddles fascinating. I made myself a little bouquet of lupin and mountain posies and put them in a coffee cup with water. I was feeling happier than in years and years since childhood. I felt deliberate and glad and solitary. Both Jim Hentley and Jack Kerouac seem to have been affected not just by the massive landscape all around, but by the details too. They're reflected in Jim's pencil drawings. He does these exquisite miniature sketches, insects, fungi, and the faces of Thoreau and Walt Whitman. Jim had a much different path to desolation than Kerouac. He always thought he'd be a scientist, but after school, when all of his friends were going off to college, he and his best buddy joined the military. We ended up a couple of kind of hippie, confused kids joining the army at that time, and was in the army from 72 to 75. We went in the 101st Airborne. There's an airborne badge pinned to the wall behind him, maybe as a reminder. Jim started in the army as a medic. He saw it as a way to combine his love of science and helping people, but it quickly opened his mind to other paths too. And after graduating from college, he got a summer job as part of a forest fire crew. Ended up in Northern California on a fire crew and did that the next couple of seasons. Uh, met my wife during that period in Seattle and we ended up um, going to Baker, Oregon together. Jim's wife, Emery, got a job as a fire lookout on top of a 90-foot-tall fire tower while Jim was fighting fires on the ground. One day, in the summer of 1979, he was enjoying some time off with Emery up at her post when a massive fire started just across the border in Idaho. The fire kept getting bigger. 
Jim's bosses needed him back on the front line. And they called on the radio, is Jim up there? And, and I'm, I'm in the corner of the lookout going, no, no, I'm not here, I'm not here. And she, uh, she's got, they know you're here. They wouldn't be calling you on the radio. And so I got on the radio and, hey, we're going to land a plane and uh, we're going to pick you up and we're heading to a fire in Idaho. Get your gear and um, we'll have your stuff. And, and so they picked me up and then she got to hear. They took him to what was called the Mortar Creek Fire. It was burning hot in the Idaho wilderness. By the time Jim's fire crew was called up, it had burned 56,000 acres. Fires this size might be common now, but this was not a normal event, not back in the late 70s. Emery could see the fire in Idaho from her lookout location across the Snake River in Oregon, and she knew Jim was in there. Worse still, she could monitor the radio conversations about the fire. Jim says that she was concerned for him, to say the least. She was our radio relay for the forest for long enough to figure out that I was in a very dangerous job. And uh, so she just said, you're going to quit doing that. You're, mm. you're going to, let, let's try to um, do something else, like with the lookouts. So they did. The Forest Service preferred that couples work together at lookouts. Keeps away the loneliness. Jim and Emery worked fire lookouts together till 1987. Their infant daughter would even join them up there during the summers. But when a second child came along, they decided to hang up the old Osborne and retire from lookout work. But retirement only lasted 14 years until, out of the blue, Jim got a call inviting him back. And he couldn't resist. So in 2001, he was back at a lookout. And he has been at one every year since. All told, he now has more than 30 seasons under his belt, honing the craft of spotting smokes and fires. And over the years, he started to notice something changing. He started seeing more fires like the Mortar Creek. They were getting more intense, bigger, and more frequent. And just a very active season, and fires were getting crazy. And, <clears throat> and I think we got out of it for that 14 years, right at the time when, when bigger and bigger fires were really starting to happen on a regular basis, not just isolated like that one I was on in 79. In, uh, and so when you came to Washington State, did you feel like you hit a period when fires were, were uh, on average, bigger? They were just getting bigger and that was becoming more normal? Yeah, sometimes on my horizon, like over by Lake Chelan and stuff, there'd just be all these plumes going up, all these... Uh, pyrocumulus is going up above all these different fires from a lightning bust, but it wouldn't just start small fires. They'd all go big quickly and become uh, big complexes. It turns out that one of the reasons fires are burning bigger today is because of the way we used to fight them in the past. In other words, we humans have been part of the problem, a problem that has been going on for generations. And this realization has led to a big change in the way we are managing the landscape. After the break, we'll look at how the philosophy of firefighting has changed. At SoundSide, we bring you news and conversation rooted in the Pacific Northwest. Hi, I'm Libby Denkman. I think of my job hosting SoundSide as, number one, asking tough questions of powerful people, the questions you KUOW listeners want answered. 
And two, bringing you a daily slice of the fascinating, confounding, and often goofy side of life in Washington State. Join me for SoundSide at noon and 8 p.m. on KUOW or anytime on the SoundSide podcast. When fire breaks out in our national forests, even in the most remote areas, the U.S. Forest Service is on the job in a hurry. It used to be that all fires on public lands were put out as quickly and as completely as possible. The time to stop a fire is before it gets too big to handle. For decades, through Kerouac's time and Jim's early days, I was seen as the best policy. Put the fires out. Fire suppression. But this left lots of brush and dead tree material on the forest floor, dry material that would build up year after year, causing a massive accumulation of fuel. Now that all those fuels are there and all those um, forests have grown up that uh, wouldn't necessarily have in the, in the older context, um, but with all that suppression, we, we allowed conditions to arise that were ripe for, unfortunately, for a very bad outcome. Once sparked by a lightning strike or backcountry campfire, this fuel created megafires. Heat and fury so fierce that nothing could survive. The very tactics used to prevent fires in the past are now helping to fuel the biggest fires we've ever seen. You see, this place was meant to burn. The trees are designed to survive a fast, low-intensity fire, Some of them even need fire heat to open up the cones and seeds. Entire, thriving ecosystems have sprung up because of fire, not despite it. The meadows I walked through to get to the peak were created by fire, and so was the biodiversity that those meadows support, the flowers, insects, birds, and fungi. For thousands of years, Native Americans have known the benefits of using fires in a controlled way. They used fire to make habitats productive for game and crops, to provide for their needs. But for forest managers, it took a while to realize this and to move from a philosophy of regulating fires, putting them out right away, to managing fires, letting them burn in a more controlled way. And when I was first in the Forest Service, mm. it became much more about um, regulating fire. Managing fire was, was all the watchword, and that's only become more so in, as the years have gone by and we've realized we have to manage this thing. We can't, control, you can't suppress it. You can't throw enough millions and millions of dollars in equipment and people at it to, to, to suppress this thing. So mm-hmm. we need to manage it. But there is another cause behind today's megafires that goes beyond a change in forest management. It's all tied in with climate change, as we well know now. And uh, that's, that's our future, is fire. When we lose trees to fire, a couple of things happen. They're no longer there to do their job of breathing in carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. In fact, when they burn, they release the carbon they've been storing while they were alive into the atmosphere. More carbon in the atmosphere means more global warming and drier, hotter forest conditions, which leads to even more fires. It's called a feedback loop. Today, fires are not only more intense, but they also burn more often. In the past, fires would burn in this ecosystem around Desolation Peak every hundred years or so, naturally. It's called natural fire rotation. But today, 
They burn more often and in the same areas. They're called short interval fires. These fires damage forest soils and deplete seed banks, making it harder for affected areas to bounce back. Even increasingly rare old-growth trees, which have evolved to be resilient to fire, can be damaged by high-intensity and repeated burns. Jim shows me the evidence of a past wildfire on this ridge, one from nearly a hundred years ago. That there's some snags still from the 1926 fire because this was so burned over. A fire came out of Little Beaver, crossed the river, and then came roaring up this ridge. So if we walk down down here just a bit, there's a there's a standing snag. And... A fire had raced in the upper Skagit, and all the country around Desolation, my mountain, had burned for two months and filled the skies of northern Washington and British Columbia with smoke that blotted out the sun. I'm looking at evidence of that massive burn that Kerouac described. It's still visible around the lookout. The government had tried to fight it, sent a thousand men in with pack string supply lines that then took three weeks from Marble Mount Fire Camp, but only the fall rains had stopped that blaze. And the charred snags, I was told, were still standing on Desolation Peak and in some valleys. That was the reason for the name, Desolation. The charred snags are still standing, like eerie pieces of fire history. This one, this stump here, you can see the, the burn marks at the base. Sometimes they, they take some pretty dramatic forms and are all twisted and have great burn holes in them way up high and where the, you can just picture the flame shooting out of oh, yeah. if you've ever seen trees on fire. The name Desolation came from the destruction caused by this 1926 fire. But that fire was just one of many. So when you see the beginnings of a fire, does it just take off and go crazy? Not or, always, or, no. no. It depends on the weather and the conditions and the drought. And, the, you know, it takes a lot of factors to make a fire really take off. Even days after a big storm, Jim has to keep a watchful eye. Maybe a little bit of fire interior on the snag, but it's just kind of smoldering for days sometimes. It could be a sleeper for really? days or weeks even. And then gets the right conditions, gets dried out, gets just some fuel pocket, and just takes off suddenly, wow. and you realize, oh my gosh, that's from the fire, the lightning two weeks ago. Two weeks ago, a hundred years ago, the passage of time is somehow clearer from up here at Desolation Peak. In his book, Desolation Angels, Jack Kerouac ruminates on time in his description of an old photograph taken from the lookout. When I look at my panoramic photographs of the desolation area and see the old mules and wiry roans of 1935 hackled at a no more corral fence, I marvel that the mountains looked the same in 1935 as they do in 1956, so that the oldness of the earth strikes me, recalling primordially that it was the same. They, the mountains, looked the same too in 584 B.C. Well, they aren't the same now, are they? Um, we're watching the, the changes happening fast. Jim reaches for something. He pulls out the same panoramic photograph that Kerouac described. It's black and white and about four feet wide. But it's the same one Jack's talking about in that passage because he mentions the pack horses in the picture, which mm. is an unusual thing. And uh, there they are over there. And um, It was interesting um, to see that you could compare the glaciers in this 1935 photo of August and compare them to August now and go, whoa, wow. big difference. 
Jim pours his finger over the photograph and then points through the window to the corresponding peaks. I can look over towards Spickard and uh, peaks to my west and, and there's, I mean, you see a lot more big talus slopes now where it used to be glacier. If, uh, if Jack Mountain comes out today, you'll see the Nahokamine Glacier on it is quite large. Um, and some of that's missing now from, from mm -hmm. what we see today. And these peaks and over some here? Of them, it's really obvious just because we can see the whole glacier in this photo. It isn't blocked by another peak or something. And you can see where it's receded and how much shorter it is and how much gray uh, rock there is below it now from what we see in the photo. Kerouac marveled that these peaks looked the same in 500 BC. The rock that makes up these peaks may not have changed in that time, but the climate and the ecosystems have, and that change over time is now visible on the landscape, on the retreating glaciers. Kerouac made it through his 63 days up here. It was a struggle for him, though. He never did find peace on desolation. Soon after his time on this mountain, he shot to fame and was never the same again. But for Jim, this is definitely his calling. He's 68 now, still looking for fires as a dedicated federal employee, as they become more and more part of life in the Pacific Northwest. He uses science and technology to protect our environment, but he's also a witness, a sentinel, carrying on the history of this land and the changes it's experiencing. Being at a nexus of not only all those scientific studies, but also history, um, you're at a nexus. And in this case, literary cachet, because Kerouac was a writer and an artist and a poet. That's all part of being human. To me, I, I just always go back to that idea of that we're storytellers. We've been storytellers for as long as we've had the gift of speech. Jim is continuing on the story of Desolation Peak for the next generation. I mean, the Park Service is all about preserving legacy, preserving story, preserving structures and sources and, you know, keeping, keeping ghosts alive. Keeping ghosts alive. The nostalgia of things from the past and the knowledge it carries, whether that's 50 or 5,000 years ago. Desolation Peak has seen it all. The lookout itself is part of that. The building has stood there for almost 90 years now. Jim keeps a visitor's log. Hikers who make the trek up to the top get to sign their name and leave their own bit of history on desolation. He likes to thumb through the many entries. It makes him mindful of the stories and legacy we leave behind. It's something he often thinks about on his nights alone at the lookout. So will your story be worth a good song? What you did in this brief little moment you got, because um, it's all just a moment, it's a flash in this geologic time we're talking about with glaciers and this valley and all the changes it's seen. We're, we're just a brief glimmer. Will, our, will ours be a, an interesting bit of it? Will we have done something positive maybe? Left something good? Will we have helped preserve something like this for, for future people to see, future whoever to see? Our future may be fire, but our present is for us to write. Perhaps through science, or through the eyes of poets, authors, and artists, ever watchful for the smoke on the horizon.
Well, this is it, folks. That was our last episode for season four. Matt, Jim, and I, and the rest of the Wild team want to thank you so much for listening. We feel like it's it's a privilege to bring you stories from this magical planet that we all call home. And we'd love you to share them with someone who's looking for a bit of inspiration and hope, because there's a lot of it around when you look for it. We've already started work on season five, and I promise to keep you posted about when the first episode will drop later this year. Some exciting plans unfolding. If you'd like to see photos of the spectacular view from Jim's lookout, head on over to our Instagram at The Wild Pod, and you can find me at Chris Morgan Wildlife. A special thanks to all the people at North Cascades National Park that made this episode possible. Karen Taylor-Goodrich, Tamara Sterling, Tanya Kitterman, and Denise Schultz. And to Bernard Woulette for giving a voice to Jack Kerouac. The Wild is inspired not just by nature, but by the people who work in it, love it, protect it. The Wild is a production of KUOW in Seattle and me, Chris Morgan, with support from Wildlife Media. One way to support this vital work is through my wildlife organization, Chris Morgan Wildlife, on Patreon. There's a link in the show notes. Our producer is Matt Martin. Jim Gates is our editor. A very special thank you for the kind financial support to Jill and Scott Walker, Rose Letwin, Ellen Ferguson, Anna Kimball, John Taylor, Paul Lister, Mark Wilkins and Rebecca Badger, Bob Yellowlees, Barbara Stallman, and Annie Mize, and to Entota, the Nature Trust of the Americas. Our production team includes Juan Pablo Chiquiza, April Craig, Michaela Giannotti, Kara McDermott, Tio Popescu, Darcy Riggins-Schmidt, and Brendan Sweeney. Our theme music is by Michael Parker. I'm Chris Morgan. Until season five, get into nature as much as you can. It's medicine. And take good care of each other. Hey, my name's Claire McGrain, and I'm a producer for Seattle Now, KUOW's local news podcast. There is a lot happening in our region, and it's a lot of work to keep track of it all. We'll get you caught up on the latest news and take a deep dive into something happening around the city, all in under 15 minutes. Get a morning walk-in or grab a cup of coffee and start your day with us. Learn something new and connect with our city by searching for Seattle Now wherever you get your podcasts.